it's good to have uh, Mr. McGuire back with us again. So, let me just get my notes out here. <laughs> All right. Um, the title of the series is Reconquista. It's going to be a two-part series, tonight and a week from tonight. However, I want to start out by saying that the term Reconquista can be one of the most misleading historical categories in the world. All right. Because what does the term Reconquista imply? First of all, what does it mean? Reconquest, right? Pretty obvious, not hard to figure out. So, reconquest. And so, in essence, the term Reconquista designates something that is, in fact, only really visible in hindsight. All right? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what, what I mean precisely is this. Uh, to conceive of the Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula as an 800-year-long struggle, right, which is what the term reconquest implies, can kind of lead us astray a little bit. And the reason it can lead us astray is because the actual events that constitute the Reconquista, right, the men involved, the battles involved, the kingdoms and little states that were involved, never at any point conceived of their goal as the complete reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. That, in fact, <laughs> was never foreseen as a goal. So the, the, the reconquest taken as a whole can be seen as the amalgamation of hundreds of years of activities that really amount almost accidentally to the complete reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula by Christians. And so in a sense, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to think of the reconquest in two ways. On the one hand, we can look at it uh, from the perspective of the end, and we can look backwards at it and say, okay, over the course of seven or 800 years, Christians completely reconquered the Iberian Peninsula. But on the other hand, it can be helpful for us to really understand what's going on at the time if we start at the beginning. And so let's start with the actual Muslim conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. This will, this will give us some insight into what exactly was going on for 800 years here in Spain. So the uh, date for the Muslim conquest of the Iberian Peninsula is not difficult to remember. It's 7-11. That's where they all work. Anyway. conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, in a sense, reveals to us the close links between Iberia and North Africa. So let's, let's look at the events as they happen, and, and it'll reveal to us uh, a lot of the historical reality of what's going on here. As you know, if you see it on a map, Spain comes very, very close to Morocco, right? You can look from Spain to Africa, and back from Africa to Spain if you want. The Iberian Peninsula kind of extends down something like this, right? And it comes very, very close here to the coast of North Africa, right? Now, this land here had been conquered in the seventh century by the Umayyad Caliphate, and they had a name for it. They called it Al-Maghreb. The governors of Al-Maghreb, however, tended to look longingly across the Straits of, the, of Gibraltar to, towards Spain. 
Why? Well, it's obvious, right? Which is nicer, Spain or Morocco? Where would you rather live, Spain or Morocco? So they're, they're constantly kind of gazing in an envious eye towards the fertile fields and valleys of Spain. Right? Now, the opportunity for an Islamic conquest of Spain presented itself in the early 8th century in one of the strangest ways possible. So let's look at it this way. The governor of this territory within the larger Islamic empire was a fellow named Musa. Now, Musa is actually a, a biblical name. It's an Old Testament name. Who's Musa? Moses. Moses, right? His name was Musa bin Nusayir. Now, Musa bin Nusayir, as the, the governor of al Maghreb here in North Africa, he was, in a sense, a vassal of the larger Islamic empire. Now, the larger Islamic empire at this point North Africa was a part of it, but in fact, how big was it? Anyone have any idea? In 7-Eleven, how big is the Islamic Empire? No, it's very, very large. It includes all of North Africa, it includes all of the Middle East, and it includes Persia, it includes parts of Transoxania, it extends all the way to the Indus River. It's an enormous empire. And what's the capital? Baghdad. No, not Baghdad. Damascus. Damascus. The capital of this entire large empire was Damascus. And the name of the dynasty that's ruling the Islamic Empire? Umayyad. So the Umayyad dynasty here, under the caliph, I think his name was Al-Walid, uh, was, and they had their little governor here, Musa ibn Nusayir. And, and Musa ibn Nusayir was um, kind of had trouble controlling his subordinates. And this was a major headache for Musa. One of his subordinates who he had a particularly difficult time controlling was a fellow named Tariq. Tariq ibn Zayid. Now, Tariq ibn Zayid was a creative fellow. And without the permission of his superior, Musa, Tariq had opened up uh, kind of negotiations with various Christian princes over here on the Spanish side of the Straits of Gibraltar. Now, um, politically speaking, anyone know what is the status of this land here? What is the status of the Iberian Peninsula at the beginning of the 8th century? Who's, who's ruling? It's not the Holy Roman Empire. Absolutely not. Um, it is, in fact, ruled by Visigoths. Right? Visigoths being one of the barbarian tribes who occupied this territory during the downfall of the Western Roman Empire. Now, the Visigoths at this point are, of course, Christian, deeply Catholic. Their language is a kind of a dialect that's based on Latin. In, the Visigoths are, in fact, very, very Romanized. So when we think Visigoths, it, it shouldn't mislead us into thinking of these people as you know, barbarians who paint themselves blue. Right? These people have been civilized. They've cultivated a, a Christian society here in the Iberian Peninsula for centuries after the downfall of the Western Roman Empire. The Visigothic king in the early 8th century was a guy named Roderick. Now, Roderick was... Uh, kind of a crafty fellow, and when he saw a girl that he liked, uh, there was very little that could stop him from grabbing her. And so Roderick, at one point, had told one of his vassals here at the southern end of the Iberian Peninsula, you know what, your daughter 
has a lot of potential. <laughs> Maybe she should come to the capital at Toledo uh, for an education, right? So he took the guy's daughter and he gave her an education. Now, the, uh, this in fact uh, made the vassal very, very mad. And so when, when the vassal got the letter from his daughter that said, hey, you know what, I, I'm up here in, in Toledo, strange things happen, you know, what, what happens in Toledo stays in Toledo, except I, I'm pregnant, right? And the father is King Roderick. This vassal then got on the phone with his best friend, Tariq Ibn Zayed. And what he told Tariq was this, look, you Muslims have been waiting for an opportunity to conquer the Visigothic kingdom in Spain, Here's your opportunity. I'll help you. I'll bring you across the straits. Um, I have a lot of friends down here in the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula who will help you. We'll overthrow Roderick. We'll destroy the Visigothic kingdom. And we'll get this guy back for what he did to my daughter. And so Tariq Ibn Zayed says, sure. Right? He brings him across. And they ferry across the armies of the Muslim province of Al-Maghreb. Now, Musa ibn Nusayr is, you know, the, the extent of his involvement in all of this is kind of questionable. It looks like Tariq ibn Zayed took the initiative here, brought the armies across, and with the help of the Visigoths in the south of the Iberian Peninsula, overthrew Roderick, destroyed the Visigothic kingdom, and in a matter of only about three years, between 711 and 714, the Islamic Empire had been expanded to include the entirety of the, Iber of the Iberian Peninsula, they had crossed the Pyrenees and even included parts of France in their domain. So that by the time we get to about 714, the border between Islam and Christendom, it looks something like this. Mm. So you have the French city of Narbonne as kind of the northern extent of their conquests. Barcelona and everything in between has been incorporated into the Umayyad Caliphate by 714. So the Islamic conquest of the Iberian Peninsula was rapid. Right? The Islamic armies dominated their Christian counterparts, and now in no time at all, we have Islamic forces not only with Spain under their belt, but threatening France as well. Right? So not a great situation for Christendom as a whole. So, is there any resistance in the Iberian Peninsula? to this Umayyad domination. Yes, there is a small pocket of resistance along the Bay of Biscay here. The northern rainy part of the Iberian Peninsula here uh, in the mountains, right? The, the climate here, it's a lot like the climate in, uh, I don't know, Seattle or something like that. It's cold and it rains all the time. So everyone's depressed, but no, anyway. Um, up here in the mountains is where we have the first evidence of a Christian rebellion against Islamic rule. Now, from the perspective of hindsight, this Christian rebellion can be seen as the beginning of what we call the Reconquista. At the time, however, there was no question of Reconquista. The idea of reconquering the Iberian Peninsula would have been a completely foreign one to them, completely outside the realm of possibility. Nevertheless, uh, they did have hopes that if they waged a successful rebellion, they'd be able to maintain a little independent kingdom for themselves, and that was the immediate goal. The leader of this rebellion up here, which begins in 718, was a fellow by the name of Pelayo. The name Palaio reveals to us kind of 
how Romanized the Christian Visigoths actually were. Because what is Pelagia? What name is that? Pelagius. It's Pelagius, the Latin name Pelagius. So Pelagio, known in Latin texts as Pelagius, very famously began this rebellion in 718, and he was allied with another uh, Visigothic nobleman named Petrus, or Pedro, Pedro of Cantabria. <laughs> and so they began this little rebellion against the Islamic authorities, and initially it seems like the Islamic authorities took little or no notice of them. Right. They had carved out a little independent Christian state for themselves up in these northern, cold, rainy mountains. The Umayyad authorities in Spain really didn't think of this little rebellion as being in any way particularly important. Right. But at the end of the day, this rebellion would be kind of the spark of the Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. And here's how it happened. Basically, what, what happened was this. In, in 721, okay, the Umayyads sent an army north of the Pyrenees to fight against the Franks. Right? So a Muslim army in 721 had penetrated north of the Pyrenees, and they were fighting against a fellow by the name of Odo, who was a Merovingian prince in the south of France. Now, this Islamic army didn't fare too well up here against Odo in 721. In fact, they were roundly defeated by the Franks. Now, the commanding officer was faced with this problem of having to go back to his superiors and say, yeah, we went north of the Pyrenees and all we did was lose. Is that going to go over too well? No, no, of course not. So what apparently occurred in 721 was this. The Islamic commanding officer decided, rather than go back to my superiors with a, you know, unalloyed bad news, let's put it that way, I will simply um, win a, a minor victory on my way back down. And that way I'll, I'll have some good news and some bad news, and I'll just put all the emphasis on the good news, right? So he's thinking, okay, if I'm on my way back down across the Pyrenees, where can I win a, a minor battle that will kind of damper the effect of the bad news? Well, how about this? Let's go crush this pathetic little Christian rebellion over in the mountains here in the north of Spain. Now, the um, Islamic chroniclers had very interesting tales to tell us about the nature of this Christian rebellion that was led by Pelayo. It was described by one Arabic chronicler as being 30 infidels and no more. What could they possibly do? And yet, when this Islamic army found itself hemmed in in the rainy, cold, difficult, mountainous terrain along the Bay of Biscay, they realized that this might be a little bit more difficult than they thought. Now, the uh, center of Christian resistance up here in the north of Spain was actually a shrine, an ancient shrine to the Blessed Virgin Mary that was known as Covadonga. Now, this um, sort of, yeah, it, it sort of. Um, the Basques are kind of a pesky pain in the neck. They're definitely in that area. Um, so the <coughs> found its way to what it knew to be the center of Christian resistance here, which was this famous shrine of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the story, as it's presented in both Islamic and Christian chronicles, is a very strange story. Because this Islamic army would have been a pretty sizable force, you know, definitely in the neighborhood of 60,000 at least, possibly over 100,000. 
And they found their way to this little shrine of Kovadanga and prepared to just squash Palayo and his force of 30 infidels, right? And what apparently happened was Palayo and his men, through whatever means were available to them, natural and supernatural, were able to confuse and frighten the Islamic force until the battle turned into a full-scale rout, right? with 60,000 men turning tail and running. And eventually, they, all, they kind of pushed themselves over a cliff, and they all died. <laughs> yeah. Now, Christian and Islamic sources kind of view this in a couple of different ways. The Christian sources obviously treat it as a miracle. You know, the Islamic forces were walking along, and then this earthquake happened and threw them all off, and, and so God was just coming down and killing them. Right? And then the Islamic sources make sense of it in various other ways. But be that as it may, the, the fact of the matter is that this defeat of a sizable Islamic force kind of establishes um, a permanent Christian base up here in the mountains. It establishes a base that the Islamic, um, the, the, the Islamic governors down here will not really make any headway in eradicate. Right? And this then kind of, he, it turns into a kingdom. Palayo has himself crowned as a king, and he calls his kingdom the kingdom of the Asturias. With the emergence of the kingdom of the Asturias, we have the first real permanent Christian foothold in the Iberian Peninsula here in the 8th century. Now, it's in the 8th century that events in the wider Islamic world occur which have a profound impact on Islamic Spain. I mentioned to you that the great Islamic empire in the early 8th century was Umayyad. Right? Now, what do you know about the Umayyads? Not, well, yeah, not, we don't really know too much about the Umayyads. One, one thing that's particularly um, distinctive about the Umayyads is that the Umayyads really lived well, uh, that they really knew how to live well. In fact, if you fly over um, parts of Syria and Jordan, you can see in the middle of the desert, there are these enormous palaces, right? the famous Umayyad desert palaces, in the middle of nowhere. And there's nothing around them but sand. Right? And so what are, what are those palaces doing there? Well, in the 8th century, the Umayyad caliphs had actually developed very sophisticated systems of irrigation and transport. And they, they had um, snow brought down from the Iranian plateau to these palaces so that they could make sherbet. And they had fertile fields there. And, and these Umayyad desert palaces became great centers of kind of pleasurable living for the Umayyad royal families. This became a scandal. This became a scandal in the Islamic world. Right. The fact that the Umayyads were living this way in a grotesquely opulent fashion brought them into disrepute among pious Muslims. This kind of um, discontent with the Umayyads sparked a dramatic revolution in the year 750, which overthrew the Umayyad dynasty in Damascus. This revolution goes under the name of the Abbasid, Revolution. Why is it called the Abbasid Revolution? Abbas, Abu Abbas, right? Abu Abbas, who kind of made himself the leader of this revolution, was a relative 
of the Prophet Muhammad. Right. He wasn't a close enough relative of the Prophet Muhammad to satisfy the Shiites. Right. But he was much, close, much more closely related to the Prophet Muhammad than the Umayyads had been. And so Abu Labas, this leader of the Abbasid Revolution, using uh, this kind of upswell of piety-based sentiment against the Umayyads, overthrew the Umayyad Caliphate in Damascus and massacred every member of the Umayyad royal family. Except one. There was one member of the Umayyad royal family who was able to escape. This fellow was a guy by the name of Abdar Rahman. We call him Abdar Rahman I. Now, his escape from Damascus and subsequent journey are rather extraordinary. Abdar Rahman was in the next room when he heard the massacre of his family members begin. He was able to get out of the palace, uh, evade the Abbasid guards. He was able to escape the city of Damascus. With, he had kind of a loyal servant with him. And the two of them were pursued throughout the Middle East then by Abbasid soldiers and partisans. And there was this bounty out on his head. And I mean, it was kind of like the Wild West. Um, Abdar Rahman, if you think about it, had the odds stacked against him in a very interesting way. Um, that was that his ability to hide and conceal himself in the Islamic world was compromised by the fact that he had red hair. <laughs> Not too many Arabs with red hair. Now, why did he have red hair? Well, he had red hair because his mother was, in fact, a Berber from North Africa. His mother had been a captured Berber, a Christian slave. And so supposedly, you know, Abdul Rahman stood a full head taller than all the Arabs around him and had this flaming red hair, a very conspicuous figure. Uh, but he was able to somehow make his way, going through many perils, uh, he was able to make his way to Spain. And I mean, there's some crazy stories about what this does to get away from the Abbasid guards. There was a moment where um, he had a couple of his servants with him, and uh, they kind of jump in the river and start swimming. And they, they get to the middle of the river, and they're not doing too well. And they look back, and on the bank that they just left, there's a couple of Abbasid horsemen standing there, and they're waving to them like, come on back, come on back. So one of the servants says, OK, he turns around, and he swims back. And then the Abbasid horsemen they pick, they pick him up and they chop his head off. Uh, so Abdar Rahman's kind of treading water in the middle of the river and he goes, huh, maybe I'll go. <laughs> he turns around, swims to the opposite bank. So going through many perils and having a whole series of close calls, this figure of Abdar Rahman I was able to make his way to Spain in 756. Now, fortunately for Abdar Rahman I, his arrival in Spain in 756 was perfectly timed. Why? Because Islamic Spain was experiencing deep divisions between different Islamic ethnic groups. Right? And the two most prominent Islamic ethnic groups in Spain in the 750s were, on the one hand, the Arabs, and on the other hand, the Berbers. Now, uh, what are Berbers? 
North African. Uh, right. Yeah, North African. Exactly. Indigenous North African tribes. I mean, St. Augustine was a Berber. Uh, the Berbers had been Romanized. After the Islamic conquest of North Africa, the Berbers had become heavy, heavily Islamized. Right? The Berbers had, as a, as a whole, they had kind of converted to Islam. Berber Christianity kind of disappeared. And so the Berbers, being North African Muslims, cooperated in the Islamic conquest of Spain. Now, in the middle of the 8th century, it's, it's a very complicated situation, but we'll simplify it simply by saying that the Berbers felt marginalized in Spain. When Abdurrahman shows up in 756, um, all of a sudden his red hair and his stature, which had been tremendous liabilities for him when he was escaping Damascus, they become his greatest strengths. Because on the one hand, he's definitely an Arab, right? He's a relative of the Umayyad caliphs, right? And on the other hand, he's definitely a Berber, and he looks like a Berber. He, he resembles his mother physically. And so he's able to appeal to the sentiments of both ethnic groups and establish himself as the Islamic ruler of Spain in 756. Right. And so the result of, the, of his actions is that by 756, although the entirety of the rest of the Islamic world was ruled by the Abbasid Caliphate, which transferred the capital from Damascus to Baghdad and made Baghdad kind of the greatest city in the world at this time. Um, Spain, on the other hand, was not Abbasid. Spain was still ruled by an Umayyad family member, this fellow Abd al-Rahman. Right? Islamic Spain would then be ruled by the Umayyads all the way from 756 or so down to 1031. Right. And Umayyad Spain would be the site of some of the most fascinating cultural achievements in the Western world in the Middle Ages. Islamic philosophy flourished under the Umayyad Emirate and Caliphate. Art and architecture flourished. Um, Christianity, to a certain extent, remained alive under the Umayyads in Spain. And it's, it's a very, very interesting period, what we call this Umayyad, uh, the Umayyad Emirate, right? Because Abd al-Rahman called himself the Emir. Now, what's the significance of calling yourself Emir as opposed to Caliph or something like that? Which is a higher title, Khalif or Emir? Khalif, oh yeah, most definitely a higher title. The Khalif is the successor of the Prophet, the ruler of the entire Islamic world. Emir just means a commander or something like that, a subordinate of the Khalif. So Abba Rahman I, he doesn't dare call himself Khalif, he calls himself an Emir. In other words, he's not claiming to be the successor of the Prophet. He's not claiming to have the title to rule the whole Islamic world. He's claiming nominal submission to the Abbasids far, far away in Baghdad. Right. In 929, that would change. In 929, the Umayyad rulers under Abd al-Rahman III, they start calling themselves caliphs. They start calling themselves khalif. Right? And that's a, a political change that kind of signals the high watermark of Islamic Spain. But that's, that's a detail that we need to really trouble ourselves about. Basically, we have to understand that between the 750s and the early 11th century, Spain was Umayyad. Right? Now, this brings us to kind of an interesting question, which is, how do the Muslim rulers of Spain treat their Christian subjects? Right? At this point, the vast majority of the Iberian Peninsula is under Islamic control. You have 
tiny little Christian states up here in the north of Spain that begin to develop in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, right? but still the vast majority of the Iberian Peninsula is under Islamic control. So how does Islam treat Christian subjects? Tolerate. Now when you say tolerate, what do you mean? Oh, let them do their thing without God. What's their thing? Well, they're, they're religious uh, uh, mass. Masses and to observe but not proselytize. To observe and not proselytize. That's pretty close to it. Yeah, yes. He, here's the problem. Right? Here's a, you, you've really kind of, you're hitting the nail on the head here. The problem is that Islamic law allows Christianity to exist, in a, but only to be lived in a, in a kind of a attenuated form. Okay. Let's look at it this way. Didn't they have to pay a tax? They did have to pay a tax. There's something called al-jizya, a tax that Christians have to pay. It's much higher than the tax paid by Muslim subjects. So here's the condition of of Christian subjects under Islamic rule. You're allowed to stay a Christian, but you have to pay higher taxes. And you're not really allowed to confess Christianity in public. You can't walk out on the street and say Jesus is the Son of God. because that's technically blasphemy under Islamic law. Um, now, what about if you're the child born to a mixed marriage, Christian and Islamic parents? You have to be raised a Muslim. Right? What if you are a Christian who kind of converts to Islam and then has second thoughts? You can't have second thoughts, right? So in other words, Islamic law, it's very, very interesting because the Muslims don't come in and simply say, okay, everyone become Muslim now. What they do is they implement a series of restrictions and laws that are designed to over a long period of time, choke off Christianity uh, and replace the Christian population with an Islamic population. And this, this aspect of Islamic law seems to be very, very effective. In, uh, in fact, you can see it, if you want to see it in real time, in operation today, take a look at the Patriarchate of Constantinople. I mean, just look at, look at what's going on there. The Patriarchate of Constantinople is allowed to exist. There's a Greek Orthodox patriarch. There's a Greek Orthodox community there. But they haven't been allowed to train clergy since the early 70s. The patriarch has to be a Turkish citizen. And so in 40 years, is there going to be a Greek Orthodox patriarch? No. Unless something changes. Uh, and this is why the Greek Orthodox are pushing very hard for Turkey to be admitted to the EU. They're hoping that the EU will help solve the problem, but that's a whole other story. Um, so what, in fact, Islamic law does in Spain right, is it implements this set, this set of restrictions on Christian behavior. Basically, you're allowed to be a Christian. You, even monasteries and convents are allowed to exist. But what if one of the monks walks out in the street and says, Jesus is the Son of God? Execution, right? That's under penalty of death, right? So in other words, evangelization is forbidden, proselytism is for even the, the public confession of basic Christian dogmas is forbidden under Islamic law, right? Now, if the, the, the problem is that if Christianity um, kind of conforms itself to the restrictions imposed by Islamic law, Christianity will die, right? 
And so you're faced with this problem if you're a Christian in Islamic Spain, especially if you're a leader of the Christian community like a bishop in Islamic Spain. Do we simply conform ourselves to the restrictions that are being imposed on us by the authorities in order to have the church survive, in order to be able to administer the sacraments, right? Or, or do we simply go out in the street and tell everyone that Jesus is the Son of God and wait to accept martyrdom? What would you advise? Underground. Existence. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be the path chosen by the bishops. The bishop of Cordoba, for example, uh, in the ninth century, most, most definitely the, the bishops of Cordoba favor this approach by the Christian community. They say, okay, we'll, we'll try to be as close buddies as we can with the Umayyad rulers. We'll encourage our priests and monks and things not to go out and try to make converts, not to go out and proselytize, don't go out and confess Christian dogmas in public that kind of thing, right? And if, you know, if you're a Christian who converted from Islam, we kind of are going to be uncomfortable about having you as a member of the Christian community, right? Now, this approach became kind of a scandal to members of the Christian community after a while, right, in the ninth century. And the result of this fact was that under the leadership of a priest, under the leadership of a priest named Eulogius, in the ninth century, a group of Christian saints decided that they could no longer conform themselves to the dictates of Islamic law, and they were going to go out and seek martyrdom on purpose. Because the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. And so what happened was this. Um, from the, the text that was written by Eulogius himself, from Eulogius' testimony, we have evidence of 48 martyrs in the city of Cordova alone in this period. And the stories are fascinating. Each story is, is really unique. Um, there's one case, for example, of a, a young woman who was the child of a mixed marriage, had been secretly raised Christian, and later on went on to become a nun. Now, she was living kind of a peaceful, quiet life in the convent. And uh, some family members figured out that they had this relative who was living in a convent and being a Christian. Technically, she's an apostate because one of her parents was a Muslim. So she was denounced to the authorities. She was brought forward, and the authorities said, look, we, we really don't want a headache on our hands. Um, just, just say you're a Muslim, and we'll let you go. And she said, no, Jesus is God. Uh, right. So they said, okay. They chopped off her head, and they threw her body into the river. Right. Uh, another story was of a, a priest right, who, I forget the guy's name, there's this one particular priest who decided he was going to run through the streets of Cordoba telling everyone that Jesus was the Son of God, and he was going to tell as many people as he could before they got him. <laughs> so he ran around saying, and then the, the cops get him, and they drag him, they cut off his head, and they burn his body, and they threw his ashes into the river. Guadalquivir, I think. But anyway, uh, it's, you get these, these amazing heroic stories of the martyrs of Cordoba, mostly between 850 and 859. Now, what happens in 859 is the priest, Eulogius, himself is martyred. Right? And since he had been the one writing down the stories, we don't have any more stories after 859. But that doesn't mean there weren't more martyrs. Uh, we know for a fact from other sources that later on in the 9th century, you have this continual string of Christian martyrs stepping up and voluntarily, actually, you know, not just accepting martyrdom, but really aggressively seeking it. And so the blood of martyrs, in a sense here, uh, it turns out to be really the seed of Christians in a very direct kind of way. 
because the blood of Christian martyrs, particularly as their deaths are recorded in texts that are read throughout Western Christendom, it becomes one of the biggest motivating factors behind the Christian push to reconquer uh, Islamic Spain. Now, the martyrs of Cordoba um, are not the only real religious um, propaganda uh, feature that emerges on the Christian side right, in this battle for Spain in the 9th and 10th centuries. Perhaps even more importantly, uh, in the 9th century, we have the discovery of the bones of St. James in the northwestern portion of Spain. And now when, when I say discovery, how do you know it's the bones of St. James? Right. You come along, you find a box of bones, it says St. James. Oh. <laughs> well, good enough, yeah. Um, so what's important about this is that in the 840s, right, the king of Castile, which was another one of these tiny, kind of, tiny Christian kingdoms that had emerged in the sea of Islam in Spain, the king of Castile was a guy named Alfonso II. Right? And what he had done was, after kind of raiding and recapturing this particular city, uh, he claimed to have found in a church there the relics of St. James right, in the 840s. Now, to understand the significance of this, we have to understand how important relics were to medieval Christians. Relics were important to medieval Christians in a way that's hard for us moderns to fathom. Right. Relics were seen, in a sense, I mean, not, not that they're not seen this way today, it's just not, we don't think of it nearly as much, it, it's not as much a point of emphasis in modern spirituality, but relics were seen as direct points of contact with God, with the divine, with the saint, right? The presence of relics was equated with the presence of the saint himself, right? And so pilgrims would travel hundreds or even thousands of miles just to see and touch relics. Right, this is a tradition in Western Christianity that goes back to time in the world, that you actually walk over thousands of, of miles of terrain just to put your hands on a relic for five seconds. And so the discovery of the bones of St. James in the 840s becomes a rallying point for Christian Spain. Right. It allows Alfonso II to speak to the rest of the Christian world and to say that the war against Islam has now taken on a religious character in which all Christians have a stake. Right, because the bones of St. James are here. And so as a result, we find, beginning in the ninth century, the first pieces of evidence that the Christian struggle against Islam is really going to take on a religious character. Right. Now, it's at this point that it would be useful for us to make a distinction. Okay. We know that the Islamic conquest of Spain happened in, uh, happened in 711. Right? We know that Palaio's rebellion began in 718. Battle of Copenhagen happened in 722. Um, the discovery of the bones of St. James would be in the 1840s. The martyrs of Cordoba would be in the 1850s. Right? Uh, but never at any point in the 8th and 9th centuries is there really a united Christian push to eradicate the Muslim presence in Spain. What you have here in this period, in the 8th and 9th centuries, is the establishment of tiny Christian kingdoms up here in the north, right, who are constantly at war with the Islamic state down here to the south, but they're also constantly at war with each other. And that point has to be understood throughout the totality of the 8th, 9th, 10th, and even well throughout the 11th centuries. 
The Christian states in the Iberian Peninsula were at war with one another in a way that made a kind of a unified Christian push to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula impossible. And this is where the distinction has to be made. Because when you have a situation like this, where you have Christian state X will ally itself with the Muslims in order to fight a war against Christian state Y, you don't have a Reconquista going on. What you have is just a bunch of petty little states involved in petty little territorial wars. This, however, would change drastically with the introduction of crusading ideology into Spain. Now, so the question for us ultimately is, when does crusading ideology first really become introduced into Spain? We talked about the Crusades uh, in our last series that that we did here. And those of you who were there for it, do you remember, what's the distinctive feature of crusading that makes it different from other kinds of war? It's always uh, in response and defense to it's a defensive war, right? What, what else? What, what, you can have a defensive war in it and not be a crusade, right? It's for God. Uh, Lots of people fight for God. Muslims fight for God. Take a vow. What kind of vow? Um, oh. It's a pilgrimage vow, right? Yeah, yeah. So crusading is linked with pilgrimage. Right. What else is distinctive about crusading? Indulgence. The indulgence. Right? Crusading is distinguished from other kinds of war because there is an indulgence from the papacy which is attached to crusading. So in other words, the crusader is a pilgrim. The crusader is, in a sense, a temporary monk, as it were. Right? And he is doing what he's doing in order to obtain spiritual benefits. Right? Now, when this is introduced into the Iberian Peninsula, it will have a profound effect on the types of war that you have going on in the Iberian Peninsula. Because, I mean, let's look at it this way. As late as the 11th century, in the time of El Cid, for example, you all know El Cid, everyone's seen the movie about El Cid, right? Um, El Cid was a guy who, when he he found it convenient, he allied himself with um, the Islamic emir of Saragossa to fight against the Christian king of Aragon, right? Is that crusading? No, no, of course not. But that that type of behavior would disappear in the 12th century. When we get into the 12th century and the 13th centuries, under the leadership of the papacy, Christian princes in the Iberian Peninsula begin to cooperate with one another. And this is what fundamentally changes the character of what we call the Reconquista. And it's really beginning in the 12th and 13th centuries, and only then, that we can really speak of a Reconquista. Because it's at that point that you have Christian princes unifying under the leadership of the papacy with the specific goal of driving the Muslims out of the Iberian Peninsula. And so it's only really then that we can speak of something like Ray Conquista or something. <coughs> now, how am I doing on time, Septim? I want to take a minute. a few minutes and then we can take a break for a question and answer. Oh. So you... Okay. All right. I don't want to run out of time. It's bigger. Two more hours. Um, so, in any event, um, let's just cover the, the main, most important issues and we'll set ourselves up for completing the Ray Conquista next time. Um, by the time we get to the 10th century, we've reached really the height of Islamic power in Spain. It's in 929 that the um, Umayyad state in Spain becomes a caliphate 
instead of an emery. Right. This, this signals a kind of a level of, of confidence and independence on the part of Islamic Spain, where they're independent from the rest of the Islamic world. They're probably the most powerful state in the Western Mediterranean. They're culturally advanced, et cetera, et cetera. They don't feel very threatened by the Christian princes to the north. Um, even by the time we get to around the year 1000, things become very, very difficult for the little tiny Christian states up in the north. Uh, the great Islamic general Al-Mansur, or Al-Manzur as the Spaniards call him, he sacks the cities of Burgos, Leon, Pamplona, Barcelona, etc. Right? And so the Christian situation around the year 1000 is very, very precarious in the north of Spain. All of that would change, however, in the early part of the 11th century. What happens is this. In 1002, Al-Mansur dies. In the aftermath of his death, we find that there's no one capable of maintaining the unity of the Umayyad Caliphate in Spain. In fact, what happens is the different um, cities and provinces of the Umayyad Caliphate in Spain, all at once, they seem to rebel against the, the Caliphate. Right? And the result is that by 1031, the Umayyad Caliphate of Spain completely collapses. Right. Now, the collapse of the Umayyad Caliphate in Spain leaves us with what? Instead of a unified Islamic Caliphate, we're left with a patchwork of tiny states. Right. Countless tiny Islamic states now occupying the Islamic portion of Spain. So if we take our chronology up to 1031 here, what we see is if this is the Islamic portion of Spain, in 1031, so red shading here is Islamic. We have, instead of a unified state that's capable of responding to Christian threats from the north, we have a series of tiny little states that are all at odds with one another. And so it's really in 1031 that the balance shifts. Now, you have some small Christian kingdoms, but there's only a few of them, right? You have small Islamic kingdoms, there's a lot of them. But after 1031, the balance shifts in favor of the Christian kingdoms, even though the Christian kingdoms are still kind of at war with one another in the 11th century. Gradually, throughout the 11th century, the boundary of Christian and Islamic Spain shifts further and further and further to the south. Uh, if we were to take our chronology down to 1086 or so, it would be something like this. I thought that it, the Portuguese were the first. They did it in the western part first. They were the first to do what? Uh, defeat the uh, Muslims in, starting around 12, 1300. Oh, that's a little bad. You're talking about events that happened a little bit later. Uh, in 1085, Alfonso VI of Castile wins great battles against Islamic forces. Kings of Portugal were definitely involved in great victories against the Muslims in 1212, for example, at Los Navas de Or even, I guess, the conquest of Lisbon in 1147 is something that you're thinking of, too. But they weren't the first. Uh, they weren't the first to win important victories against Muslims. Um, so if we take our chronology down to about 1086 here, down to about 1086. This is where the line would be. This is where the line would be. So Islamic Spain is now much smaller. Christian Spain is now much, much larger. Still divided into factions. Now, um, in 1086, a very important change would occur, which we'll use to kind of set up our next lecture a week from today. And that is, in 1086, the Islamic states in the south of Spain would invite, to help them, 
a great Islamic tribe from Africa known as the Almoravids. And in 1086, the Almoravids would come into Spain and completely change the game. Right. But we'll have to talk about that next time. So. Did they get many help from other European neighbors? Yes, yes. Now, the, the help from other European neighbors really begins to pour in, um, kind of in, in the, that's more of a 13th century thing. Um, although I, there are in, instances of it that are isolated, but are nevertheless significant. For example, in 1147, during the Second Crusade, the English fleet that was sail on its way to sail from Portsmouth and was going to sail through the Strait of Gibraltar to the Mediterranean in order to go to Jerusalem. Now, they, um, on the way, they sailed by Lisbon, and they stopped, and they, they say, hey, how's it going? Alfonso I, king of Portugal, was there, and he said, oh, I'm trying to conquer Lisbon from the Muslims. And they said, okay, we'll help. And so all of these English knights helped conquer Lisbon, and uh, then they got back in their ships and went on their way. And so you do have little instances like that of kind of isolated contributions from elsewhere in Europe. Uh, but in the 13th century, you begin to see serious contributions from France, for example, um, knights pouring in to fight at Las Navas de Tolosa and places like that against uh, Islam. Uh, the tension, there, there's a kind of a slight tension on the part of the papacy there, which is this. They want Christian knights to defend um, the Latin East. They want Christian knights to defend Jerusalem and, and territories in the Levant. Um, but they don't want Spaniards doing that. They don't want Spaniards uh, leaving the Iberian Peninsula to go to the east because they don't want to kind of give up the frontier there. They want they, And so even at the time of the First Crusade, Urban II tells the Spaniards specifically, this indulgence does not apply to you. <laughs> you, you, know, you are not given leave to go to the east. So the, the war against Islam in the Iberian Peninsula is largely a kind of a local project. But you do get contributions coming in from other places, too. Is the occupation uh, really an occupation uh, of Spain by the Muslims, or is it more like uh, an emigration of, of peoples? And if it's an emigration of peoples, uh, what's the ethnic uh, composition of the peoples in Spain today? Are they mostly, basically, uh, Muslim or Arabic by background? No, no, it's, it's interesting. Um, that's a very interesting and, and good question. Um, what tends to happen in the 7th and 8th centuries when the Muslims conquer a place is you end up with this kind of upper crust of Arabic um, leaders, I guess, and a general population that kind of assimilates itself to the Arabic culture. And so the Berbers, for example, um, do this in Islamic North Africa. The Berbers convert to Islam. They start speaking Arabic and writing in Arabic and and they, they become very Arabicized, uh, but they're still treated as a distinct people and as being kind of second-class citizens by the Arab upper class. Uh, now, in Islamic Spain, to a certain extent, this happens as well, uh, where the general population of Spain, whatever the original ethnic stock would have been, um, well, Visigoth, but it, it's always kind of, um, it, it, ethnicity is always a sort of a pseudoscience um, here because they're also Roman and they're also pre-Roman and they're Neolithic and they're cavemen, I mean, whatever else. <laughs> I mean, and I'm, I'm serious about that. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you look at um, DNA studies, for example. And I mean, I, just just an example: the population of Ireland is not Celtic DNA-wise. 
it's the same uh, kind of Neolithic stuff that goes back to the Stone Age that was in our, and the majority, for the majority of the population. So you have a Celtic culture, Celtic language, Celtic Christianity, and all of that. But in terms of like DNA and bloodlines, you know, it's not a Celtic people. It's, and it, it's, it's really a very modern thing to um, investigate. Uh, it, it's kind of a post-Darwinian thing to investigate people's bloodlines and ethnicity and all of that. Um, but what happens is that um, in Islamic Spain, you do have this assimilation of the existing population kind of into the Arabicized culture. And so you get a lot of literature that's even written in Arabic, um, not only by descendants of the original inhabitants who have converted to Islam, but even Christians in Islamic Spain write in Arabic. Um, and so linguistically and culturally and all of that, you have this, this sort of assimilation that goes on. Um, now, what, what tends to happen when Islam, when, when the Muslims withdraw from an area, when they're pushed back, is they do tend to leave it depopulated. Right? And so repopulation of areas from which the Muslims retreat is an important feature of the Reconquista. Uh, so for instance, the, the Duero River Valley in Spain, the Muslims had possessed this valley, and then they withdrew under pressure from the kingdom of, Cas of Asturias. And then what the Asturians did was they offered peasants uh, freedom from um, their existing feudal ties if they would agree to go in and settle in the valley. And so a decent portion of the Reconquista involves Islamic withdrawal from a region and then the Christians going in and kind of repopulating empty towns and empty valleys and, and that sort of thing. And so the, it would be more from those people that modern Spaniards would be descended from the people who went in and kind of resettled, repopulated areas from which the Muslims had withdrawn. So I don't know if that answers the question, but... No, it's a bit like the Normans going into England, where the basic population stayed the same, but the upper crust, in effect, uh, right. and the imposition of the language uh, became English, which was influenced by the French. Uh. Yeah, that's a good, good analogy. Yeah, I mean, this is probably a question for, for uh, at the end of the session, at the end of the series next week. But, uh, but what's the implication for uh, Christian evangelization, Catholic evangelization, given the fact that Islam has this political component and you can't divorce it? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so how can Catholics have a rational conversation uh, with Muslims? I mean, what would it take to sit in a cafe in Saudi Arabia with the Bible oh, you and can. have a conversation? I know that. I know you can't. What would it take to get there? Oh, I, I don't think you can get there. I, 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 I mean, seriously. It, it really depends. I mean, the extent to which you can get there is, is going to precisely coincide with the extent to which you can make Muslims no longer Islamic and make them into kind of Enlightenment-style, secularized Westerners. Uh, and, so, and, and this is kind of a problem, is that in, in modern-day America, a lot of people, uh, even at higher levels of policymaking, are concerned with that very question. And so they're concerned with this question of how do we get to that point where you can sit in a cafe with a Bible in Saudi Arabia? And the answer that tends to come from think tank policy statements on the conservative side is, well, we just have to secularize them. You know, we have to kind of go into the Islamic world and spread a mess, you know, like kind of beam the Simpsons or, or Lost or something so that they can watch it with Arabic subtitles. I don't know. But, it, you know, like turn on Al Jazeera and watch the Simpsons. I don't know. But, but that if we kind of evangelize the gospel of secularism 
in the Islamic world. That's what will make them more friendly to us. And I'm profoundly troubled myself by that approach because I, secularism is the enemy. And, and this is what I, I think is behind Pope Benedict's approach to things. Uh, you know, I had a Turkish professor when I was in grad school. And I was in grad school when uh, Pope Benedict was elected. And I, I saw this guy in the computer lab, and, and he said, Oh, Brendan, um, uh, how do you feel about the new pope? And I said, Well, I, I like him. I think he's good. And he said, Oh, yeah. And, and he was all upset because Ratzinger had opposed Turkey's admission to the EU. And uh, he, he was saying, No, the pope doesn't realize we're friends because we're so secular. And oh, no, 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 no. Secularism oh, no. is the enemy. And so I, I think there's an extent to which we have to really think about how evangelization has worked in the past. And evangelization throughout Christian history has always worked through martyrdom. You know, just people going in with the gospel and being martyred. Yeah, but, but there's got to be, there has to be a different uh, model in today's society. Why? I mean, I'm, 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 <laughs> Gone. <laughs> 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 I 